This is Adam Stavis with Truth is Eternal 2021 tuning in for another episode. I you know I promised one a little while back. I had one or two things I'd run into I had to take care of. I was going to do an episode on um, the plan of salvation or the plan of redemption as it's sometimes called basically God's plan for his children. I decided to go ahead and actually do one though on uh, Joseph Smith and his what's titled his first vision. And the reason why is, is the channel is about putting forth um, theology and doctrine for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as I understand for other people. And again, the church itself is not affiliated with this channel. This is all done on my own um, time and on my own uh, choice individually. But the reason why I've chosen this instead of others is just due to the fact that in order to really grasp where the, the church is coming from doctrinally and from a theological point of view, you kind of have to understand about Joseph Smith and you have to understand um, where the found the overall part foundation is, is coming from. Right. So Joseph Smith is seen as kind of a Moses like figure within the church. He is credited with uh, the translation of the book of Mormon He's credited with restoring priesthood or divine authority to act in God's name, with bringing forth a lot of different doctrines. Most of the scriptures, like in the Doctrine and Covenants, the LDS Book of Scripture, a lot of those, the vast majority of those sections are all through Joseph Smith. So he he really is this, um, for, for our generation, almost a bigger-than-life kind of a person. But, and of course, there's a lot of controversy uh, regarding uh, President Smith. Um, for me and for other members of the church, though, he's a prophet of God and the um, incredibly special person, um, notwithstanding whatever weaknesses he may or may not have had. But it really all starts with um, him as a teenager. He grew up in Palmyra, New York, and at the time it was during one of the Great Awakenings, so everyone was really into uh, religion, things of that nature, and Joseph's family appears to have been kind of divided in matters of religion. His father's, I understand it, was kind of non-denominational, and his mother and several of his siblings went to a local uh, church itself, a Protestant church of sorts, and he he kind of like most young teenagers, kind of grappled with what was going on because you know you you walk around and especially in smaller towns, everyone knows everyone and things of that nature. You know, you see people going to this church or that church, and then you see them saying or doing this thing, that thing, kind of a thing, kind of the you know the hypocrisy within the faith type of a thing that. Um, Christ was so condemning of, of the Pharisees and Sadducees, unfortunately. It's still something that we deal with today. But he was constantly trying to really determine what the right thing to, to do was with regards to um, God and religion, because his family, like a lot of families in that time, were pretty religious, um, spiritual people. They read from the Bible. Um, they you know, they went to church, they, they tried to do the best that they could, and they, everyone had their own opinions and their own ideas about religious matters, but he he's just this farm kid growing up in 
New York in the you know the early 1800s, and he's really being exposed to not only um, different ideas about religion than what he may end up reading in the Bible, but he's getting all these different doctrinal inputs from these uh, professors of religion or these uh, ministers, some people with more education than others. And he, you know, you read one verse of scripture, it's interpreted X number of different ways. And he's just constantly being exposed to this. And so he's really kind of a, he's not really well-educated well as a youth, but you can tell when you read stuff from Joseph Smith um, throughout his life, you can tell that he is a, a fairly intelligent guy, um, just naturally speaking, that he has the capacity and ability to learn, that he has the ability to um, to take information and to understand it. It's just that he didn't have much of a chance for a formal education like a lot of people in those days did. They were too busy you know, farming and doing what they were going to do, just trying to make ends meet. But he just continually is wondering which of all the faiths really is right, which of them is true. And from a teenager's perspective or from a religious perspective, that's a pretty fair uh, question, right? If there is only one faith, if there is only one real truth, then what is that truth? And if you're constantly being subjected to these different ideas and these different interpretations of scripture, particularly if you have your own ideas regarding scripture, your family does, you're just getting, you know, pulled this way, pulled that way in every which way. And, you know, maybe a lot of teenagers today and even then weren't quite that way, but you run into people that are pretty um, deep thinkers. And Joseph Smith seems to have been kind of that type of a person based off of everything I've ever found out about the man. But basically, he's pondering this question. He goes to different religious meetings, revivals, and he's just trying to figure things out and trying to determine how in the world do I figure out what church, what faith is correct, is true. And you read his own words, and you kind of get the inclination that he's, you know, he's not writing where we get this from from his history and from other things you can tell that he's been quite truthful i think in his um summation of events that he was really curious and was really wondering about what to what to do and it turns out that at some point or another he comes across uh james chapter one verse five from the king james bible if any of you like wisdom let him ask of god that giveth to all men liberally upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And a lot of times people will have interpreted that scripture or other scriptures that indicate to go ask God as, you know, maybe not being literal, maybe being more symbolic or being um, not not being a, a literal thing, being, like I say, symbolic of some other such thing or or just going to the scriptures kind of a thing. But Joseph, as a 14-year-old boy, he he takes it quite literally, um, as a lot of people um, in those days did take most scripture literally in a lot of ways, and of course some still do. And he basically determines that the best course of action is to go inquire of God. And, you know, it seems kind of, from a 14-year-old boy's perspective, he reads a scripture that basically says, hey, 
if you have a question, if you lack an understanding or a knowledge of what of something, then go ask God and he'll give it to you if your faith is strong and he'll give it to you, you know, liberally, openly, freely kind of a thing for whatever you can uh, handle, I guess is the implication. And he takes that again quite literally and he goes over on their property to a certain spot, what we would call now the sacred grove. And he essentially goes ahead and he tries to um, pray about it and how long he basically had been going over this in his mind or how long he had been struggling with this question other than the fact that it must have been many weeks, months, or even a couple of years. That's about the only thing I've ever been able to, to find. So there's not really a, a time frame that I know of for just how long he was kind of battling with this question in his mind overall. But he ends up going out there and I'm just going to kind of read in his own words um, some of the scripture. And this is going to be from the Joseph Smith history and the LDS Pearl of Great Price. And essentially, it goes from the previous verse 13 on to 14 that after he's uh, gone ahead and read from James 1 5. He says, so in accordance with this, my determination to ask God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day, early in the spring of 1820, so 1820. It was the first time in my life I'd made such an attempt for amidst all my anxieties. I had never yet made the attempt to pray vocally. And I think what he's referring to here is to pray vocally on his own or vocally in the way that he's going to, from what I can gather. He says, after I'd retired to the place, where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy, which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world, who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being, just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy, which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, so two individuals, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the six was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the six was right. For at this time I had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said that their creeds were an abomination in his sight that those professors were all corrupt, that they drew near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, 
They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He again forbade me to join any of them. Many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength, but soon recovering, in some degree, I went home, and I leaned up to the fireplace. Mother inquired what the matter was. I said, never mind, all is well. I am well enough off. I then said to my mother, I have learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. It seems as though the adversary was aware at a very early period of my life that I was destined to prove a disturber and an annoyer of his kingdom. Else, why should the powers of darkness combine against me? Why the opposition and persecution that arose against me almost in my infancy? So those are kind of Joseph's words of his experience, what we would term in the church the first vision. And it's kind of called the first vision uh, due to the fact that this is really the first major um, visionary experience for not for Joseph Smith, obviously, he's never experienced something like this, but because this is really the the heavens opening, so to speak, in a way that is um, that, that heaven is basically opening for the people of the earth that uh, this is the start of what we would deem the restoration or the restoring uh, Christ's church to the earth. And, you know, you can come across uh, other variations. He gave, Joseph Smith gave, I guess, three or four different accounts that were written at different points um, that had various aspects of the vision. Uh, some of the original readings were actually they saw a, like a pillar of fire, um, which if you go to other parts of different scriptures seems to kind of coincide pretty well with what other ancient prophets have also described as well. But the entire point being that it um, it kind of establishes another a number of doctrinal um, things that other faiths do not have. It kind of it well, I guess it doesn't kind of it it does in fact fly right in the face of the traditional um, Nicene Creed doctrine. It basically establishes that God and Jesus Christ have are two individual uh, beings or personages, right? They're not one individual being. They are two separate beings um, who have bodies of flesh and bone. They have physical bodies that if you were to be in their presence and, you know, you were to be essentially permitted to be in their presence if their presence, their spirit was on you to prevent you from basically being um, destroyed, and you were able to physically, if you were to go up to them and you were to feel them, you know, they'd have hands, they'd have feet, ears, eyes, mouth, nose, that kind of a thing. And you'd be able to, to you know, shake their hand or, or touch them if they were to permit you, and you would feel a physical body. And this really doesn't sit well at the time with a lot of um, the people in the community of Palmyra, it doesn't sit well with a lot of <laughs> the Christian community today either. But you have to realize that this is a this is a little different for these people than it is for people today. Um, today, the church is you know a worldwide church as members all over the earth. Um, you know, some are more active than others and whatnot, true of any faith. But 
in Joseph's day, I mean, this is a small farming community. People know each other. And, you know, there's no real movie theaters or anything like that. Maybe in some towns they'd have a, a theater where they perform plays and stuff and, you know, get togethers for Fourth of July or Christmas. But the churches are really where a lot of um, social interaction go on at the time. People all are kind of at their individual churches. They might, you know, migrate, but people are pretty tight knit. These are tight knit communities in these areas, and they are very much. Um, held together by their religious beliefs. And the ministers and people that are there are well-known. People know them. And, you know, they have their confrontations over religious matters. But basically, people know one another. They're, they're not really um, strangers or anything like that. They, everyone kind of knows who the other person is. And if you've ever been in small areas or towns or places like that, you know that if um, something happens or someone says something, it spreads around like wildfire, especially in an area where you don't have radio, you don't have, uh, you know, the internet, you, heck, you don't even have um, telegraph technology that doesn't come across till, you know, a little while down the road. And Joseph ends up telling, you know, a few people about this experience. It, it completely, not, not only is it, you know, theologically flying in the face of religious beliefs at the time, but it's kind of like these ministers whom I don't know what their level of um, education is, but, you know, they're grown men. And they're having to listen to a 14-year-old boy basically tell them that the religious beliefs of the people in the area and in general at large are wrong. And, you know, it just doesn't sit well with a lot of people. And, you know, Joseph is kind of surprised that, uh, it's causing such a ruckus. And really, if you look at it from a logical and rational standpoint, it, you would kind of kind of agree, right? Maybe some people wouldn't, but it's kind of like, okay, well, the kid is 14 years old. He's saying he's had this religious experience and he's seen this or he's seen that. You know, the most people would end up saying, you know, well, so-and-so must be crazy or so-and-so is maybe, you know, just making something up kind of a thing and, you know, just let it be and it'll die out, but it seems from what uh, occurred that that was really not the case, that people really began to um, target him uh, vehemently in a lot of cases uh, and cause a lot of grief for the family at large, meaning Joseph Smith's family. And it's kind of a perplexing thing from Joseph's standpoint, it, it just kind of, and for people that uh, believe he was a prophet, it really kind of it makes a horrible kind of a sense because in our minds it's one of those things of well you know people are attacking him in this way not because simply his viewpoints are different than theirs they're attacking him because you know satan is fully aware of what's happened and you know the word has gone out right the very base one of the most fundamental basic truths of reality of spiritual reality is that you can ha- you can talk you can have revelation from god on joseph smith's day and to some extent today people had a viewpoint of when the apostles of jesus christ died there were no more visions everything that you needed was in the holy scriptures and you know you n- nothing else was going to happen god's work was done kind of a thing maybe he might raise up some special people here and there to do a few things but for the vast majority of people it was done and finished and 
yada yada we're waiting for judgment day kind of a thing live righteously do this do that but um you know don't talk about open revelation don't talk about um taking the scriptures you know literally kind of a thing where if it goes against mainstream held beliefs but joseph's experience kind of illustrates that revelation is real that god still cares about people and again it it's thrown in the it kind of throws in the face of the traditional theology of the Nicene Creed of God being everywhere and nowhere and all this other stuff and being a being purely of uh, purely of spirit in whatever way shape or form you want to have that and Joseph's vision basically establishes that. God has a physical body. He's a tangible, individual being that even though he's God, he's, in appearance, he's like you were me, right? Not like, you know, in general kind of a thing. He has a body. He, you know, he has eyes, ear, mouth, nose, hands, arms, feet, all that kind of stuff. And if you were to be in his presence, you would see a being that would look like another person, albeit God would, of course, be exalted, glorified, all these different things. So in order to even stand in his presence, you'd have to essentially um, have his power sustain you in order to even be in his presence for any length of time. Otherwise, you'd be destroyed. So this pretty much teaches Joseph that everything that he's been told is essentially wrong with regards to the major theological ideas that he has not maybe only been taught in his home, but also in and around the various churches. And if you're a 14-year-old boy and you've had that happen, and then everyone starts attacking you, that's a lot for a, for for that would be a lot for a grown person to take into into mind. Let alone a 14-year-old boy with really not a lot of formal education beyond being able to read and write, basically, and do some arithmetic, like adding, subtracting, maybe some division, um, but which was not unusual for the educational levels of most people in those days. Um, but it is just perplexing. Um, it's perplexing to me, actually, as a person sitting down here. Uh, if, you know, X number of 150, 180 plus years afterwards to read some of the accounts and to see that people were reacting that in that way. And, you know, there's no indication that Joseph Smith should have ever been able to really gather much of any um, popularity or any level of support, but he did. And of course, you know, later on we have but the visitation by the angel Moroni and the golden plates and the translation of the Book of Mormon, which I believe, as a side note, I'll do another episode regarding that, um, kind of go in trans an order to those. And you're kind of left with a wondering of, well, was Joseph Smith lying? Was he telling the truth? Was he, um, you know... Was he mental? Was he need need did he need to be in a in the funny farm or in a mental hospital? And these are questions that have been asked. I'm sure people were asking questions like this even back then when he started talking about it, and people are still asking questions like that right now. 
my own personal take on it is that Joseph Smith was telling the truth. I personally have asked God regarding it and have received revelation from the Holy Ghost that it is, in fact, 100% true that what he said he saw, he saw, and what he ended up experiencing, he experienced. And, you know, it's one of those things that you really can't, you, you can't make someone believe something. You can't, um, you can't, you have to respect people's right to choose, right? You, you can't, um, all, all you can do is tell people your own experiences and let them make of it what it is. And I think that's kind of what Joseph Smith himself ended up learning throughout his life as well. But here you have that after the death of the apostles for this vast stretch of time, that all this ignorance, all these philosophies and traditions of men that are being intermingled with the scriptures, the Bible, and suddenly a light bursts forth and Joseph gets this revelation and vision that just upends tons of doctrinal and theological um, ideas, theories, hypothesis, hypotheses, I guess would be the plural form, um, that he has no clue of. You have to remember, he's a 14-year-old boy on a farm in New York, which is sparsely populated, not hardly any formal education other than the, the bare basics. He, he wouldn't have had a clue just how much of a threat some of those doctrinal ideas were in terms of how much it basically flew in the face, not only of the local traditions, but, you know, of, you know, Catholic traditions or um, uh, various Orthodox faiths, various Presbyterian faiths uh, in Christianity and things of that nature, whether those, you know, are uh, Coptics or Syrian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Western Catholicism, um, Baptists, Lutherans, you know, the list goes on and on. He, he wouldn't have had a clue um, just how much it was flying in the face of certain things at that time, other than beyond what he basically could know and understand as a 14-year-old boy and what he had heard in the various churches and the opinions that people had. So I, I don't quite think he realized the tidal wave of, of what he had basically set in motion, number one, or just how much the revelation that he had received and that he did receive how much it basically blew all those ideas uh, and personal opinions of men completely out of the water in a way. No, no doubt later on he, of course, realized that from a Latter-day Saint perspective, but it, it's a perplexing thing. And, you know, in some ways you kind of are left wondering, well, you know, it seems like people overreacted, and I, I think they kind of did. But those are my personal feelings and ideas and opinions about the matter. Um, hopefully, you'll be able to get something for this. If not um, a belief in it necessarily, then at least, you know, a little bit better base level understanding. And if you ever have questions or uh, want to learn more about the church without having to necessarily ask someone or you know, really feel pressured, you can visit the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints uh, website, um, churchofjesuschrist.org, and it'll have, you know, all of our scriptures, all of these talks, the, our general handbook of instruction. Basically, everything is up there. If you have questions or you want to look at something from an intellectual standpoint, or if you're, you really are curious about it, you can go there. 
Um, that's all I have for this episode today. I hope it was informative, and I hope that uh, all finds you well in this year. God bless, and thank you for your time, patience.